I think I'm on, Todd. There we are. Thank you, Skylar. Thanks, Todd. Thanks, children, for helping get this word out. Indeed, we give thanks that the word does go out, and it takes many mouths and many hands to help this happen. So thank you for all of your help. Now let us pray. Lord, sanctify us in your truth. Your word is truth. Amen. Well, happy Epiphany to you all, for here we are on the second Sunday in the season of Epiphany. It's a bit of a belated greeting for you, but Epiphany is a season that comes, well, after Christmas and before Lent. It's often described as the season when we hear about the Magi or the wise men coming to honor Jesus because they came a little bit after Jesus' birth. It's also described as a season of light because the wise men followed the stars to find Christ. But more directly now, it is a season, like all of our church seasons, in which Christ is not just adored, but comes right to you. Not just to accentuate or to accessorize your January or February, but actually to put an end to your false trust in, well, the stars or whatever else you may be trusting, and to bring a close to your many attempts to become wise on your own, and instead give you a word, the only word that is trustworthy and true. That word, in a nutshell, is that your sins are forgiven on account of Jesus. And that is truly an epiphany. Well, last week, we heard from Matthew about how John reluctantly baptized Jesus. The one who knew no sin took on our sin, actually became sin itself for our sake. And now this week, we, we take a break from Matthew, though we'll hear from Matthew a lot this year, but we step over to the Gospel of John, and we'll do that on occasion uh, this year as well. And we hear how John the Baptist's first encounters with Jesus went. These encounters now are pivotal. They're actually a pivot point, literally pivoting the preaching about Jesus. Because up to this point, from the Old Testament up to John the Baptist, the preaching of the prophets was to say, he's coming. The Messiah is coming. He's not here yet, but prepare the way. Get ready, for he's coming. And John the Baptist was the last and greatest preacher in this vein. But this pivot happened in his lifetime. And so John's preaching goes from he's coming to, as we hear this morning, he has arrived. He is here. And so our gospel tells us how when John saw Jesus coming, he blurts out this very short sermon. He says, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Here he is. Now last week, I wondered aloud with you about whether it would be the bison or the jackrabbits who had come out on top of the FCS championship game. And, well, you know the answer now. We didn't know last week, but we know. Well, some of you thought you knew, I suspect. But now we all know, and jackrabbit fans, you've been waiting for some time, witnessing nine bison championships, waiting your time. But now you can say there is a pivot. For we have arrived. We did it. We are here. You can say this with gusto, and I've heard you say it, and you can keep saying it. That's fun. Now, Minnesota Vikings fans, we're still waiting for that pivot. <laughs> we'll find out how that looks today a little bit later. But Israel 
And the prophets, they also had been waiting, not nine years, not just decades, but thousands of years for something even more pressing and promising than a championship or a Super Bowl. They had been waiting for the promised Messiah to come and save them from what they thought was the mediocrity of being under the thumb of their adversaries. There were the Assyrians, the Babylonians, there were the Persians, the Romans. They had all seen other champions come and go. When was it going to be their turn? They were waiting for this. When would their Messiah come and lead them to victory and independence? Well, it is on this day in the gospel that John recognizes that the Messiah has arrived. Yet, yet this Messiah, this Jesus Christ, had not come in the way they had expected, with visible glory, with rings of championships on his fingers, with worldly power, with might that people could maybe take some credit in as well. And John's short little sermon reveals that the victory of Christ would come out in quite a strange way. Strange, at least, to Israel's eyes, and strange, I suspect, to our eyes, too, some days. Here is the Lamb of God, John says, who takes away the sin of the world. This was the sermon on which all preaching pivoted. But it doesn't sound that impressive to the world. I'm not even sure how it hits your ears. And it doesn't leave much room for you or for me to take credit in the victory, to be able to say, look at us, we have finally made it. This is what we look for in victory. But in fact, this sermon reveals that you and I and our sin specifically is actually the problem. And beyond that, it reveals that you and I have nothing to do with Jesus' solution except that God calls us into it. And that is essential. Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, who takes away your sin. For John, in fact, this sermon spells the beginning of the end for his ministry. He points to Christ. Luther observes he points with a long bony finger, which means that he's pointing away from himself. This is not usually good for business or politics. Usually it's common wisdom to tell your story to say, look at what I've done, to tell about your accomplishments, to sell the great things that you've done so that others may trust you. And this actually, this telling your story is actually pretty necessary for business. I suspect most of you know this, and for politics, and for most of the things we go about doing. But this is not the life of a preacher, nor a Christian in faith, nor perhaps even a congregation, as strange as that may sound, who, as the psalmist shows, must be drawn up out of the desolate pit, out of the miry bog, before a new song is put in your mouth. And so John points beyond himself to Jesus, not once, but twice. And in the process, he loses two disciples. They go and follow Jesus instead. And then a potential third, Simon Peter, and depending on what you think about Peter, you might wonder whether this was a good thing for John or bad. But we'll hear next week how John's miry pit becomes prison itself. But all of this was necessary for Christ to come. And so John preaches on, here is the Lamb of God 
who takes away the sin of the world. And now this is our sermon too. For you are not the answer, and you are not the wisdom, and you are not the future. And I know that sounds a little dour. <laughs> but Christ is, and here is our hope. He is the Lamb of God. But who really wants a lamb? Well, lambs are cute. I will give you this. My kids recognize this as well. They have a number of stuffed animals they call stuffies. Uh, one of them has a little lamb called Lammy. And Lammy is precious in our household. And Solve and Rafe and Josiah will set them up, these stuffies. They'll watch what they're doing. They sometimes will take care of them like a veterinarian, giving them shots, uh, put a leash on them, lead them around the house. Lambs can be quite cute, but they're not very fierce in battle. You may be wondering, like the whole world, like the Israelites, if you really want a lamb on your side when the going gets tough. Well, my kids do, I can tell you that. But what does a lamb do for us? Well, you may remember that when God freed the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, God used a, a lamb, the Passover lamb. Though the Israelites did not deserve it, God saved them from a life of bondage and false gods and slavery by instructing them to take a perfect lamb the best lamb, and to sacrifice it without breaking any of its bones and then to put the blood of the lamb on their doorposts. You remember this. And then when that night came, when the spirit of death would come to take the firstborn children, that spirit of death would pass over those houses that had the lamb's blood on it. And they would be spared this judgment, not because they deserved it but because, or because they had worked hard, but because God had chosen them for this salvation. And now God chooses you for this salvation. Not that you will escape death, but death will not have the last word for you. For the Lamb of God is here for you, and he takes away your sins by going to the cross, by enduring death, before you, and then by being raised from the dead as you will be raised from the dead. And so here he is. We are at, well, the pivot. Here he is in this word. And in a few minutes, this Lamb of God will come to you and give to you his perfect body and his perfect blood so that you may eat this in the Lord's Supper. And this is your final victory, a break from your attempts to be good enough, an end to your quest to find inner peace, because in this word, you are brought out of the miry pit. You are brought out through death and raised to new life. In this word, you too have a new song in your mouth, and now like Isaiah and like Peter later, well, you may feel you've spent your strength for nothing in vanity. Now God has become your strength. Because here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, who takes away your sin. And so now, in this promise, you are free. I mean truly free. For there is nothing to encumber you when you have the Lamb of God. Because the Lord who is faithful has chosen you. Happy Epiphany and Amen.